1: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside
2: Church. It's bad enough when one of your children gets in an accident. I can't imagine this. But Satan didn't stop there. Satan destroyed all that he had. His herds, he had they were stolen, taken away. He destroyed all of Job's considerable wealth. And so Job finds himself childless and penniless. What could be worse, humanly speaking... Job was about to find out. I can
0: see the promised land. Though there's pain within the plan, there is victory in the end. Your love is my battle cry. The answer for all my life. Every dragon will fall, the mountains will melt.
1: Senior Pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so delighted that you've chosen to spend time with us today on the broadcast. And as always, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's program, Pastor Keith will be taking us through a series on the providence of God, where we'll be making stops in the book of Ruth, in the Psalms, and also in the book of Job. So if you have your Bibles... Please turn with us today to the book of Job. Now, here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
2: Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you, Lord, for all that we have, Lord. We thank you for suffering, Lord. And we're going to talk about suffering today, Lord. Why do we suffer? Lord, give us wisdom for this understanding and application, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So today's message is entitled, Why Is This Happening? Some people ask the question, why is this happening to me? And what we're going to be talking about is the providence and sovereignty of God and suffering. And so why do bad things happen to good people, terrible things? For that matter, why do good things happen to bad people? Why is there suffering? Now, these are questions that have plagued the minds of many people in our spiritually fallen and chaotic world, our broken world. <clears throat> they ask, why is this happening? And maybe you've wondered about such things from time to time. There's one answer to that question. It's a one-word answer, and it may or may not surprise you. Why is this happening to me? Providence. 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 We've been talking about providence for several weeks now, and if you're just joining us today for the first time, bear with me because you, you might like, lack context for some of this. But during our discussion, we've largely focused on the happy ending of providence. As we've studied the book of Ruth for the last four weeks, and just last Sunday, Psalm 121, we saw where God got, guided all of these things to a wonderful conclusion— What is providence? Just to remind you and to review, providence is the governance of God by which he, in wisdom and in love, cares for and directs all things in the universe being in complete control of all things. Love and wisdom and suffering and hardship. Hmm. Another definition is that very real and active care of God for his creatures and his creation. Providence assures the working out of every detail in God's plan, formed before the foundation of the world, inch by inch, step by step. And as we've learned anything, we've learned that the devil is not in the details, but God is. You know, we looked at that Shakespeare quote all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They all have their exits and their entrances. The one man in his time plays many parts. The character here assumed a fatalistic world. But our world isn't fatalistic determinism. It is guided and guarded by by the sovereignty and providence of God. God in his sovereignty and providence has given each of us roles to play. And his own play, you might say, the unfolding drama of redemption, each of us has a particular corner of the stage. Some people are backstage, offstage, and out of sight. Some people are front and center. We have no idea as we live inch by inch in this world, how our role will develop, but we know that God has written a script. Just like Ruth and Boaz, with their finding each other and marrying, they had no idea the ripple effect of their union. But through them came the Davidic line of Davidic kings. Through them came the Messiah. And in a manner of speaking, our salvation. Providence. Now we read in the Bible that God causes all things to work together for good for those that love God and who are called according to His purposes. And we read even in Genesis 50 that even what others intend is evil against us, God intends for good to bring about a perfect and saving result. We saw this worked out in the book of Ruth, where people initially made bad choices, left the Promised Land, choices that led them and cost them dearly. Three people died. Yet God provided a way forward for two destitute widows, one of them ending up being the great-great-grandmother of King David, and again, through whom the Davidic line and the Messiah came. That's providence. We looked last week at Psalm 121. I'll read it for you again. You can see the emphases here, how they play into uh, your life. I'll lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will deliver you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will preserve your life. The Lord will keep your going out and coming in from this time forth and forevermore, we saw that providence, God, is watching over us, and he's involved actively in the details of our lives. Whether he's protecting us salvifically, whether he's protecting us in the routine errands and activities of our daily lives, the believer looks to the God, the God, the only God, the one who made all things, who spoke the universe into existence. The believer, she looks to the one who never sleeps nor slumbers nor dozes off at the switch. The Christ follower looks to the one who protects him from dangers seen and unseen. Yet, yet, bad things happen. And there is injustice in this world. Suffering, it's a fact. It's an objective, deniable, indisputable fact. How do we reconcile this? Are these things, do all things work together for good? And then there's suffering Are these things reconcilable? They are. They are. In my counseling ministry years ago, I worked with a man. He was an alcoholic. He was addicted to porn. He was dependent on marijuana. And he asked me the question why is God doing this to me? Because his life was a mess. His children were alienated from him. His extended family avoided him like the plague. It was a mess. And his wife would eventually leave him. And his suffering, he had to see, in his case, was the result of his choices. Sin, namely. He was a professing Christian who lived his life as if God did not exist and was irrelevant. And indeed, as a Christian, if he was really a Christian, then likely his loving God was trying to get his attention through his suffering. Because because of providence, consequences, choices have consequences. A person can pretend that God doesn't exist, but he still has to live in God's universe, in God's world, and he will or she will be governed by God's principles, which when violated lead to harm. There is a cause and effect relationship that is brought to bear on our lives daily, and I would submit to you, and I submitted to him, perhaps you're suffering all these hardships because God wants you to stop hurting yourself and your family. And so I told him his, con- his choices had consequences and God's consequences were a sign of his love and involvement in his life, providentially speaking. There's an old saying that has become cliche. God works in mysterious ways. We, some saw, we saw some of that in our study of Ruth. I once chatted with a pastor who lost a four-year-old child suddenly, unexpectedly, and crushingly. He adored this little boy. Why did God allow his death? Beyond that, his death triggered an autoimmune disease that put him out of work in ministry for something like four years. It nearly ruined him financially. And after a very, very slow recovery, he returned to ministry. He wrote a series of books and workbooks about his suffering and about suffering in general, the first of which is called The Cup and the Glory. And I I would suggest you buy it. It's, It's a wonderful book. It has blessed thousands of people and parents and children over the years because of this man's suffering and loss. Now, was his suffering a good thing, therefore, or a bad thing? What do you think all these people thought? People still ask, of course, why is this happening to me? I suppose Johnny Erickson Tata asked such a question over time. And over time, she found her answer. Some of you may say, Johnny who? But to most Christians, she is a beloved, well-known figure in the Christian world. Outside Christian circles, she's known too, really. If you looked up her Wikipedia page, you'd read this, and I'm going to excerpt it for you now. Johnny Erickson Tata, born October 15, 1949, is an evangelical Christian author, radio host, artist, and founder of Johnny and Friends, an organization accelerating Christian ministry in the disability community. The Wikipedia article goes on. Tata lived a very active life through all her growing up years. She enjoyed riding horses, playing tennis, hiking, and swimming. On July 30th, 1967, when she was 17 years old, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay after misjudging the shallowness of the water. She had a fracture between her fourth and fifth cervical vertebrae and became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the shoulders down. During Tata's two years of rehabilitation, according to her autobiography, Johnny, she experienced anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, and religious doubts. However, during occupational therapy, she learned to paint with a brush between her teeth and began selling her artwork. She also writes this way, although her writing tasks today depend on voice recognition technology. To date, Tata has written over 40 books, recorded several musical albums, starred in an autobiographical movie about her life, and is an advocate for people with disabilities. Providence. Johnny Erickson Tata has been an encouragement to millions and millions of people, including my own family, my own daughter. She's now 73 years old. She's been a quadriplegic for nearly 56 years, Of her 73 years she lives in constant pain she has neurological pain why did God do this to her why did this happen why did this happen to her some worldviews would tell us karma maybe she did something terrible before her accident what goes around comes around that's karma doubtful this happened to Tata I suppose that's what Job's friends thought. You know the story of Job. Job had all these terrible things happen to him, and his friends thought, you must have done something really, really bad because of all the suffering and agony that Job experienced. Most of us know the story of Job. Job suffered greatly, and for no apparent reason. Job was not the cause of his suffering any more than Johnny Erickson Tata was the cause of hers. In fact, if we look into the Bible, and you might want to turn to the book of Job, Job was conspicuously righteous among his contemporaries on the earth, the Bible tells us. And despite all of his righteousness, Job experienced suffering and great, great agonizing loss. Suffering isn't confined to bad people. Job was especially a good man. How do we know? Well, in Job chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God, one who loved God, one who revered God, and turned away from evil. Job 1 goes on to describe Job's great wealth. And we learn that there's more going on in Job's life and suffering than meets the eye. In Job 1, 6 through 12, we read this, and I'll read it for you. It's a long passage. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in all the earth, so much for karma, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? How would you like God to describe you that way? Does Job fear God for nothing? So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Here's providence at work. We're going to now switch venues from the heavenly places, the the heavenly spiritual realm to earth. But we already see that in providence, the sovereignty of God, he is restricting Satan's activity. And so Job changes venues between what can be seen elsewhere and what can be seen on earth. And there is a world that we cannot see. Satan is convinced that people only love God when life is easy because God makes it easy for them. So God grants Satan permission to make things rough for Job. And Satan takes his mission very seriously. Satan killed all 10 of Job's children in an accident. In one fell swoop. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the loss Now, some people might say, well, what was God thinking? Because children in that culture were your protection. They were your health care in old age. They took care of you in that era. Sort of a social security system. And talk about devastating news. He gets news when you read the text that they're all dead. All of these 10 children that he loved, his sons and his daughters. It's bad enough when one of your children gets in an accident. I can't imagine this but Satan didn't stop there. Satan destroyed all that he had. His herds, he had, they were stolen, taken away. He destroyed all of Job's considerable wealth. And so Job finds himself childless and penniless. What could be worse, humanly speaking? Job was about to find out. We switch venues again back to the spiritual world in Job chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself to the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going forth to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now, it's not like he doesn't remember the previous conversation. He's pointing something out to Satan that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil, he still, have you considered that he still holds fast to his integrity, to his faith, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. See, Job hadn't committed any horrific sin that would have invited this kind of punishment. And God is pointing that out to Satan. There's none like him. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life, to spare his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Again, there's providence putting up the guardrails. God sovereignly limits Satan's harm, but harm nonetheless is great. And so Job's health was destroyed and his bodily and men- mental agonies were great. People wrestle with what did Job have. He might have had elephantiasis. He might have had a form of leprosy. He might have had a combination of diseases. And through it all, Job seems to radiate some kind of hope. In Job one twenty two, we read, and all this... Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And in fact, in all of this suffering here, particularly on the front end, we have this famous line that people often recite without thinking about where it came from. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job also said, yet though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Job's losses and agonies accrue and pile up. And later we read, and all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. One wonders what was going on in Job's mind. There's sort of a shift here. But Job was truly crushed. I mean, this was no small thing. We read sometimes these narratives as if they're stories. Th- these are real people with real agonies, with real heartbreaks. And eventually, Job just reaches a point where he's almost at the point of breaking. He's bending. He's twisting, he's being bent by all this hardship. And we read in Job 3, 1. After all this, Job opened his mouth, and I'm just going to hit the highlights of several verses here, and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said a man was conceived. Why did I not die at birth? Why was I not hidden as a stillborn child, as infants that never see light? I mean, you know, you, not, you gotta know between the loss of his children and the loss of his assets and the loss of everything that, w- that God seemingly built up in his life and gave him over time, it's all just taken away. And his health is wrecked. And he's sitting in a pile of ashes scraping off the, the sores with a piece of pottery. Job, this good, good man, this righteous man, wished he was dead. And he does begin asking, what's going on here? Why is God doing this to me? What have I done? I have not sinned greatly against God. He's not saying he was sinless. And eventually, Job's friends show up because they heard what happened to Job and they wanted to console him. And we read that for seven nights, they came and grieved with him, seven days and seven nights. And then they did something unusual or maybe not so unusual given the human condition. They turned on him. They began accusing him. Well, Job, you must have done something bad. Look at what's happened to you. What is it you're not telling us, Job? They accused him. They told him, in turn, on a kind of a rotation, each one in their own time, one after the other, relentlessly, that Job must be hiding some secret sin. Each one took turns accusing him, challenging him, alternately pilloring him, for his pride and his secret sin that he refused to confess. And they reasoned that he must have done something really bad. And this goes on from like chapter 3 through chapter 37. It's just relentless. And Job tries to answer them. Now imagine, I was reading medical accounts years ago, and they said that Job was probably hovering somewhere near delirious and all this and he's, he's starting to wear out and wear down. He's frustrated. He becomes angry. And he says, oh, if I could argue my case before God. God owes me an explanation. Why is this happening? And God remains silent for like 35 chapters. Job is only 42 chapters long. And then God answers him after all of that. We don't know how long all this took. But his answer is jolting and instructive. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge?
1: Pastor Keith Crosby